Well, good morning. It is good to be with you this morning. For those of you who are here in person, I want to say thank you for joining with us. And those watching online, actually, a vast majority of people are still engaging online. If you're watching online, I want to say welcome, and we are happy that you have joined us this morning. We are wrapping up a series in the next few weeks uh, on the book of Mark. We're looking at the life of Jesus through the lens of the gospel of Mark. And if you remember, this is probably the longest series Pastor Rob's ever done since he's been here. This series started... The first week of this was Rob sitting in a chair and his wife Carla doing announcements, and it was just them. None of us were here. None of us were gathered in this space. Uh, but we've been looking at Jesus' life and asking some different questions about what Jesus' life can teach us. And so I'm excited uh, to continue in this, in this study, in this journey with you this morning. Uh, and I'm particularly excited because what we're going to think about today, or maybe what we're going to wrestle with today, uh, I think we all can find ourselves struggling with this at times. Uh, if you're a Christian, we certainly struggle with this in different ways at different times. Uh, but even if you're a non-believer, if you don't claim Christ, if you don't call yourself a Christian, I, I, what we're going to talk about, the problem, the tension, the, the uh-oh thing, we all deal with. We all wrestle with. And so I want to invite all of you, no matter where you are or are not on a faith journey, uh, to, to think and wrestle with some things this morning. Uh, I remember growing up, my best friend was a guy named David. Uh, we were the best friends of best friends. I mean, if, you, if there was a cartoon of how best friends behaved, it would be David and I. Uh, we were 11 months apart, and since we were kids, we were best friends. Uh, we would play together, and then we would fight, and we would argue, and we would get sent home to each other's homes. And two days later, the next chance we had to hang out, I would choose to see David, and David would choose to see me, and, and we just loved being together. Uh, we were in the same grade, but we were never in the same class. Even though we went to the same school, same grade, never in the same class until ninth grade. In ninth grade, we were in geography together, and we were so excited because finally, after 14, 15 years of being friends, we got to be in class together. And so any time in that geography class we had the chance, we would do group projects together. We would work on things and choose one another for our, our, our partner. And one of our assignments in geography is we were all assigned uh, a mountain or a river or a lake, some famous thing, and we had to do a research project and report on it. And David and I were excited because we were partners and we were assigned to do a project on Mount Stromboli. We were excited because we were big fans of pizza, Stromboli, calzones, I mean, you name it, it was right up our alley. And if you don't know, Mount Stromboli is an active volcano on an island in Italy. And we had to do this big presentation, and we were so excited. I mean, we had, we had the pizza puns and the jokes. Uh, we created this big display board that had a picture of the volcano, or the volcano Mount Stromboli, and it was erupting, but it wasn't just erupting with lava. We had it erupting with Strombolis and pizza, and things were flying out of it. Pizza sauce was shooting out of this, this volcano. And we got to the, uh, the project, we gave the presentation, our class was laughing, our teacher was rolling her eyes. Uh, she did not enjoy it nearly as much as we did. But we got done, and she said, well, that was something. <laughs> Why don't you turn in your paper, and then we'll go on to the next presentation. And it was in that moment that David and I realized that part of this project was to write a paper. Actually, not part of it. The, the main part of the project was this five-page research paper on Mount Stromboli. And then maybe the lesson of that is do as I say, not as I do, students. I, I, I don't know. 
But I think we've all had times in our lives where we have recognized, maybe too late, that our priorities were a little out of whack. That we had given too much attention or focus to something and, and let something else that maybe was more important slip aside. If you're here and you're a, a middle school student or a high school student, maybe you've done this or maybe a friend uh, has started dating someone and they start just pouring all of their time and all of their intention uh, into this one relationship. And six months, nine months, a year down the road, they recognize that all of their other friendships, they kind of just push to the side. And they give all of their priority here, and now the relationship over here, the friendships over here, have kind of just fallen apart. Maybe you're a student of any age or grade. Maybe it's grade school or college or, or, or grad school. And you realize at some point, oh, I probably should have prioritized studying and doing my homework a little bit more. Maybe you're a family and you've got kids, and all of a sudden these kids are going off to kindergarten or middle school or high school. And when they, they go off to the school, all of a sudden you realize, wait a minute, they're in kindergarten, they're going off to high school? Where did that time go? And you reflect and, and realize, I wish I would have given more priority to vacations and to spending time with my kids and investing in this. Maybe you're nearing retirement and you're looking and recognizing, ah, I wish we maybe had thought a little bit more about saving earlier on as you're realizing maybe you won't be able to retire when you want to retire or in the manner that you want to retire. And, and maybe you're in the last phase of life and you're kind of looking over this all. You're reflecting on everything and, and seeing some of the areas that you wish you could have prioritized differently. See, it's not wrong to get our priorities out of whack. It's not wrong to have to, to make tweaks. I mean, that, that's just part of being human. But that same thing happens in faith. And, and not just that faith is a priority or it isn't a priority. That's, that's part of it. But even within faith, even within the realm of faith, uh, we can prioritize certain aspects of faith over other aspects of faith. And that's a little bit what, we, what I want to think about this morning. We're going to be in Mark chapter 14 today, so if you have your Bibles, you can kind of get there. And, and Mark is a, a book that's kind of divided into three, three sections, if you will, three arcs. The first arc uh, happens in Galilee. The third arc happens in Jerusalem. And the second part of the story of Mark is what happens as Jesus is traveling from Galilee to Jerusalem. And each of these, these movements, each of these parts of the book of Mark have a different question or idea that we're invited to think about. And that first one, the question is, who is this Jesus? Who is this Jesus? In the second section, it's the disciples who are wrestling with what does it mean for Jesus to be the Messiah? And in the third section, the section we're going to find ourselves in today, the big idea or the question, what we're supposed to wrestle with, is how Jesus actually becomes the Messiah. How Jesus actually becomes king. Because the journey and the process that Jesus becomes king is the same journey and process we are invited to live into as a part of God's kingdom. And so let's keep that on our minds as we jump into this text. We're jumping into Mark chapter 14, starting at verse 55. So then the chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin. So, so right before this, Jesus was in Gethsemane, and he was met with a, with a resistance who was coming to, to arrest him and take him before these chief priests and the Sanhedrin. 
And so he's there now, and the chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so they could put him to death. But they did not find any. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. Then some stood up and gave this false testimony against him. We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with human hands, and in three days will build another not made with human hands. Yet even their testimony did not agree. So he's in this situation, and, and, and this group of people have already decided Jesus' fate. Right? They've already decided what needs to happen to Jesus, and so they just have to build a narrative, build a story to get it to happen. And so they're bringing false testimony and making things up, and it says nothing that they are saying really matches. None of it really goes together, and yet they're, they're still trying. Uh, the Gospel of Mark is, is unique, and that in Mark 1.1, Mark writes this, the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. But this is the only time in the entire book of Mark where Mark gives you his opinion. Right here, he's giving you the opinion that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. But that's the only place where he gives you his opinion. The rest of the book, Mark aims to influence you by simply telling you what Jesus says or does and then how people react and respond to it. And so in these next couple of verses, we're going to keep reading, in these next couple of verses, we are invited to listen to what Jesus has to say and reflect on how we should respond to it. Picking up at verse 60. Then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus lost it and yelled, You fools! No, that doesn't sound right. That's not Jesus. No, it's not right. I made that up. I made that up. Jesus didn't say that. That, that doesn't sound like Jesus. I made that up to see if I could trick you. No, but Jesus answered, You have eyes but have not seen, and ears but have not heard. I am not a king like Caesar, and my kingdom is not like a kingdom of this world. For my kingdom will reign forever and ever, and there will be no end. Now that sounds more like Jesus. That sounds like something that we would hear Jesus say. But if you have your Bibles and you're reading along, you know that that's still not what Jesus said. That was another Tyler translation. Because here's what verse 60 and 61 say. Then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. See, th this moment in the story that Mark is telling uh, stands in stark contrast to the rest of the book of Mark. Because the book of Mark, especially if you have one of those Bibles where Jesus' words are in red letters, if you kind of just thumb through the book of Mark and look at it really quickly, you notice that Jesus has a lot to say in this book. A big portion of the Gospel of Mark is Jesus' words. And it almost seems to build. So at the beginning of Mark, Jesus has some to say. Then it builds and it builds and it builds until the chapters right before this, it's almost all Jesus' words. But then we get to this moment, and all of those red letters just disappear. And Jesus goes silent. The book of Mark has 5,495 words of Jesus. 5,495. And yet from this moment to the end of the book, from this moment through his trial, his, his torture, his crucifixion, and even his resurrection, 
He's only recorded as saying 42 words. For context, the last two sentences I've said have had about 50 to 55 words in it. And maybe the lesson again is that I'm long-winded. But this is jarring, and it's bizarre if you look at that, that in this moment, when Jesus is pressed, when he's up against a wall, uh, when we would think, you know, when we would start fighting back and, and, and speaking our peace and, 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 you know, defending ourselves, Jesus goes silent. And it's particularly difficult to know what to do with this in a book where we're supposed to learn from what Jesus has to say. And I think it might be easier for us to stomach this reality because we all know that if we were in this position, we probably would not be silent. We would say, no, that's not true. This this is what happened. This is who I am. This is what, you're wrong. And it might be easier for us to stomach Jesus' silence if we weren't sure that, that Jesus had the right answer, right? Like if we didn't know, well, maybe he just, maybe he can't remember, maybe he doesn't know. That would be easier for us to stomach, but, but he's Jesus. I mean, of course Jesus has the right answer. Not only does Jesus have the right answer, Jesus is the right answer. I mean, if Sunday school taught us anything, that if you don't know, you just say Jesus, and normally that's the right answer. And yet here, he remains silent. And, and if you have your Bibles and you're looking ahead, you may say, but eventually he talks. Eventually he has something to say. And that's true. Jesus does say something. But, but I think in true Mark fashion, we aren't invited to move too quickly to what Jesus says, but instead sit with this for a minute and ask ourselves, what is Jesus' silence saying to us today? Because I, I think for a lot of us, I think for a lot of us, we have made this idea of having the right answer and being right central to our faith. A, a, a big part of our faith, not just mine or yours or this church's, but churches and Christians in, in, in Western civilization have made being right and having the right answer a key pillar of faith. And, and, and I don't think anyone would say that. I don't think anyone would, would openly admit that or even maybe consciously admit that. But I think it, it happens and it infiltrates our thinking and our way of life. And, and maybe that's because having the right answer makes us feel safe. Or it gives us this surety. Or makes us feel like, like we're in control. And, and this is not a knock on, on knowledge. This is not, not a knock on even the right answer. Or researching, learning, growing. I'm not knocking any of that. In fact, in Matthew 22, when asked what the greatest commandment is, Jesus says, it's to love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all of your soul and all of your mind. That we are invited to engage fully in this faith with our minds. But it's almost as if what Jesus is demonstrating here is a higher or better way of living than simply possessing knowledge and throwing it down as the last word. See, I don't know when this shifted, and maybe you could say that it's never shifted. It's always been this way. If you look at the teachers of the law and the Pharisees and the religious leaders, they were always set on having the right answer and getting it right, and we're right and you're wrong. And that was, that was key for them. Maybe you think it maybe started shifting in the 17th and 18th centuries during the Age of Enlightenment where every other area of study was looking and researching and digging deep, wanting to have explanation for everything with reason and evidence. And maybe the church, not wanting to fall behind, said, we've got to have answers. We need to figure this all out. 
and a faith that had always embraced mystery, had always embraced the unknown, had embraced a God that we can't explain. We look to have an answer for everything, an explanation for everything. And see, what, what my fear is, and, and maybe not a fear, but maybe what Jesus' silence is aiming to teach us today is that whether it's consciously or subconsciously, when we make this idea of being right, when our faith boils down, and maybe our evangelism uh, boils down to just getting someone to say the right thing or have the right answer, when our faith boils down to that, even though right answers are a noble thing to pursue, when we make that our main priority, when we make that our thing, we pursue this religion that ultimately doesn't lead to Christ. And so maybe what this passage is trying to teach, maybe what our big idea or our bottom line today is that following Jesus looks a lot less like prioritizing the right answer and more about prioritizing the right posture. That maybe following Jesus is less about prioritizing the right answer and more about prioritizing the right posture. Because here we see Jesus at his very worst, at the worst situation that he could be in, And yet, rather than than leading with an ego or self-preservation, Jesus models a posture of compassion and humility. Compassion and humility, even towards those who are bringing these false accusations, even towards those who are trying to get him put to death, Jesus leads with compassion and humility. And as I look at this text... As I, as I look at these verses, I, I, I think Jesus not only had the right answers, Jesus not only knew the right answers, but Jesus knew what was about to happen to him. Jesus knew what was coming in the next few days, and he didn't want to experience that. He didn't want to deal with the torture and the embarrassment and the betrayal and the pain and the crucifixion. He asked God, if there's any other way, please don't make me do this. And yet even then, Jesus modeled compassion and humility. If we were to flip back a couple chapters, Jesus talks about being a disciple. Jesus talks about what it takes to be a disciple, and he says, if anyone wants to be a disciple, not that they just have to get all the right answers, but whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. And hear me on this, because maybe in 2020, In a world of quick one-liners and memes and polarization, maybe in 2020 more than any other time, we need a church who models humility. And if the church in America goes stagnant, and maybe you want to argue that it already has, but if the church in America goes stagnant, it's not going to be because of lack of knowledge, but because of lack of compassion. Following Jesus is far less about just getting the right answer and far, far more about the right posture. There's, there's a story. Anytime I preach, I, I like to look at what uh, Father Greg Boyles has to say. He, he's, uh, he works with uh, ex-gang members out in Los Angeles. He founded Homeboys Industry. And I, I think I, I find myself drawn to his stories when I get ready to preach because he has a way of telling stories and communicating the heart of God in a way that just seems to center my heart and mind 
uh, on the things of God. And he tells this story about a, a, an ex-gang member named Looney. Uh, Father Greg, who's affectionately referred to as G around Los Angeles, says he walked into his office one day and he saw Looney sitting there, which surprised him because Looney had been in prison last time he, he knew. And so he goes up to him and he gives him a big hug and he says, Looney, you're out. Congratulations. And as he's congratulating Looney, he says all of his staff members walk in with pizza and pop and balloons. And apparently Looney had come into the office and said that he wanted to have a party since he was out. And, and Father Greg was learning that he was paying for this party right in this moment. But they're eating pizza and they're having pop and they're just celebrating this. And, and at one point, Looney leans over and he says, hey, can we talk in your office? Just you and me, G. And so they go in the office and they close the door. And as they're sitting there, Looney leans across the desk and he says, hey, I want you to know that while I was in prison, I was doing school and I want you to know I got straight A's. And he pulls out a report card and he slides it over the desk to Father Greg. And he opens the report card and he looks at it and it says, C-C-B-B-A. And Father Greg says, wow, straight A's. Looney, if I was your dad, I would be so proud of you. And he says Looney kind of gets teary in that moment. And then Father Greg begins to reflect on all of the realities that Looney is walking out to. That 30 days ago, Father Greg performed a funeral and buried Looney's best friend. That his father was shot by a rival gang member. His mother was out of the picture, and Looney was going to be going to live with his grandmother and several other grandkids. And he said, Looney, you must be scared to be out. And at this moment, moment, Looney just began to sob. And through his tears, he said, I just want to have a life. And Father Greg was taken back and trying to find the right words. And eventually, he began to list all of these talents, all of these gifts, all of these things that he knew Looney was passionate about. And he said, hey, man, you're going to be fine. I mean, you're a straight-A student. See, you could make the argument that the right answer would have been for Father Greg to say, you know what, you're not a straight-A student, but if you keep working at it, if you give it your best, maybe someday you can get there. But Father Greg knew that there was a reality uh, that was more important than just handing down the right answer. That there was an invitation to, to model compassion and humility as he moved into deeper and deeper relationship with those around him. See, part of this whole thing, whether you're a Christian or not, part of this not having to always be right just makes you more tolerable to be around. I mean, we all know someone, a spouse, a parent, a child, a, a friend, who always has to be right and always has to get the, the last word. I've heard it said that you can always be right or you can be in relationship. And so part of this is just about being easier to be around. But if you are a Christian, if you are a Christian, it goes deeper than that. Because even compassion and humility aren't the end goal. But if you're a Christian, part of this is recognizing that when you follow Jesus, when you follow Christ, everything is turned upside down and inside out. Following Christ changes the way that we see the world, that we think, that we speak, that we respond, that we react. It changes the way that we empathize and the way that we lead with humility and the way that we offer compassion. The way that we hope 
for the world present and in the future is shaped, informed, and transformed by Christ. And here we see in Jesus' silence someone who is prioritizing the other above himself. We see someone who is leading with compassion and humility. The, the band's going to play a song, and if you're watching online, we know that this is the easiest time to kind of close the computer or check out. But if you are watching online, I want to challenge you to give us four minutes as they play the song, and then after the song, I'm going to come back up and pray. But I've got two questions, whether you're watching online or you're here in person. And I want you to think about these two questions while the band plays this song. The first question is this. Who is someone in your life that you have seen lead with this kind of humility and compassion? Who is someone in your life that has led with this kind of humility and passion, modeled that to you, and what do they look like? What is it about their lives? And the second question, the second question is, what would it look like for you this week to model this kind of compassion and humility to the world around you? Who's someone that you know that has led this way, and what would it look like for you to live this out this week? Because ultimately, it's not our right answers that will bear witness to the transformation we've experienced in Christ, but a life that reflects Christ. Christ's compassion and humility. Heavenly Father, we are grateful that you meet us in this space. Whether we are here in the sanctuary or at home, you meet us here. And God, we ask that your spirit would move amongst us. Would you inspire and transform us? Would you move and work in a powerful and a new way today, Lord? Would you help us to be a people who are marked by our compassion and our humility? But more than that even, would we be marked by you and your love? We thank you and you, we ask that as you go before us, that everyone we see, everything we encounter, we would see through the eyes of Christ. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.